I'm Emily Feed, author of This Vicious Grace, coming in summer 2022 from Wednesday Books. And I'm Anna, a teacher and a writer in the Query Trenches. And you're listening to Basic Pitches, where we... Two basic pitches... Break down the basics of writing and being a writer. I was like in my hermetically sealed chamber for so long. Anytime, uh-huh. I thought, if you want to talk books, I'm like, oh, you want to talk books right. all day? <laughs> right. I am here for that. Right. I get very excited. Yeah. I live in a very small town where like no local people are really writers. Like there's nobody that it's just not a thing here. So whenever I'm like on a Skype call with someone or I'm texting someone, I'm like, but then what about this and this and this and this? It's an Energizer Bunny. I don't stop because this is my jam. Awesome. So we have been having a really wonderful conversation about many things in publishing, but I am sitting here with, and I didn't ask before I started this intro, but I'm going to ask it now. And all of our, you know, all of the listeners are going to be like, there she goes again. Um, It's Eric, John, that last name. Say it one more time. It's just like it's spelled. It's, it's been slanger up for a couple of generations. I love that name. It's, that's the Americanized version. Uh, it's Slangrup is a Viking name. So if you want to get technical, like if I if I go back to the homeland in Denmark, they, someone will look at that and say Slangrup, that that oop at the oh. end. But it has it's been Slangrup since my uh, since my um, for two generations. My great grandpa came over to the states. Like it got it got that Western like. Slinger up. We've already been laughing a lot. We've already been having a good time, which is fantastic because you are a middle grade debut this year with Molly and the Machine. Can you talk to us a little bit about Molly and the Machine? Yeah, sure. So uh, Molly and the Machine is uh, it's my debut middle grade. I did do some picture books way back in the day and then I got busy with life. And finally, and I was uh, I had an editor uh, years and years ago who said I should really uh, Wendy McClure, shout out to Wendy. She was right. She said I should try my hand at an older audience that my voice is naturally suited for that. Um, so gave a go for middle grade. And Molly and the Machine is a uh, is kind of all up in my. It's a um, it's a 80s sci-fi action adventure. So there's a lot of like the, it, there's a giant robot at its center because I'm really into giant robots. I kind of grew up on that and like with Japanese cartoons from the 70s on. Yes. Um, and I really liked the idea of having an adventure that where the robot is so big that part of the action takes place outside, like chasing the robot or being chased by the robot. But then part of the like a good chunk of the story takes place inside the robot because it's yeah. like you're like, it's like in being in the guts of a giant, you know? So, yes. Uh, so there's a young girl named uh, Molly, an 11 year old girl who's got a knack for gadgets and gizmos. And she has to like, kind of bring all that to, to help with the situation when her younger brother gets kidnapped by this giant robot out in, um, uh, the hills of Southern Ohio, the state where I live, in uh, in the summer of 1983 is when that happens. That's amazing. When I first read it, it gave me it gave me those old school. I did get those old school anime like vibes of um, oh my gosh, there's one in particular, but it also gave me the one I can remember off the top of my head that's not anime, but was you know from my generation was Iron Giant. 
Oh yeah. Gave me Iron Giant feels. And I am so excited to read that because that was such a, just a visceral movie. It's so funny. You say Iron Giant. I got to tell you a funny story. I was starting to pitch the book a few years ago and I had a buddy that said, I, I wasn't, I didn't know how to do it. And he said, you need, he gave me five words. He goes, your book is Iron Giant with a girl. Yes. And I said, and you know how you're always, as a creative person, you're always resistant to any kind of comp title because you don't, you're like, no, my my work is wholly original. Right. <laughs> I, it's not derivative in any way, but you need that kind of bridge for someone to, and Iron Giant with a girl sold the book. Yes. Like it was, he was totally right. And I was like, no, it's not Iron Giant. And, so, and I'm a huge Iron Giant fan. Yeah. Um, the inspiration for the book actually comes from like, um, you know, if you ever heard of the anime series um, uh, uh, Gundam. Yes, uh, that's what huh? I was trying to think. My it okay. disappeared from my brain. So the the father of Gundam is um, is a Yoshiyuki Tomino, who started another series back in the seventies that I used to watch. This is pre cable television, so I see it's going to date me, but. <laughs> On the, if you click the UHF channel, like if you got the dial just right on UHF, when I was a kid in California, in the Bay Area, there was such a, a large Asian population. They 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 played um, the anime without their subtitles or anything. So I would just watch cartoons in Japanese. Oh, and there was wow. one called Brave Rideen. And that, that just sparked my imagination in a way like nothing else. When I was like a, like a single digits kid, in the mid to late 70s. Uh, this was even like before 1980. And I just loved those cartoons. They were like crazy violent. Like, I don't yeah. think they would, for kids, I don't know if they do that. I mean, it's always, and I had the toys, like the the giant figures, and those, those toys were super violent too. They shot, like you could really hurt someone. They shot pointy missiles. Oh my gosh. You could, show, you could like shoot missiles at your brothers with them. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, it was a more dangerous era back then. Oh, my that God. That really inspired the, a lot of the idea of, like, just the the love of something really, really big that you could, uh, um, you know, just that would fill your view, but you could also get lost inside. It was, that, it was like a city. That's, that is, a, that is like, I'm, I'm I'm stuttering because that is such an awesome concept because you see it in other genres. I think of um, is it Farscape where the ship is the ship is alive, like it's a li- living creature. Yeah. yeah. Right. So right. here's this living creature you can see, and like there's a point where they see another one like it, and you can see like it's this massive creature in space, and then you're thinking, but you can go inside of it because it's a ship. Mm-hmm. That to me is fascinating. That yep. is such a cool concept. Yeah, yeah, that was. Um, yeah, I love the idea of being inside. I also had the other inspiration from from way back is um, you know when when special effects weren't what they are now. Uh huh. Back in when I was a kid, the older movies that my folks had watched, like from the late fifties, early sixties, were. Um, the special effects were all done by a guy named Ray Harryhausen, like the old Sinbad movies uh-huh. it's called Dynamation. It's basically like claymation. Yeah. So all the monsters looked all kind of herky jerky. It's, it's like stop action, you know, stop yeah. motion action. But there were 
I always had this fear of being eaten, and they had these giant monsters like a cyclops, like pirate colleagues, and you'd be roasting them on a rotisserie. And if you, <laughs> if you watch them now, like on YouTube, they look so ridiculous. But as a kid, they terrified me. So I really want, that's what set the stage for me, like idea of a giant robot just like picking up Molly's younger brother and plot, you know, just dropping him in its mouth. Yeah. That idea of just getting swallowed and then not knowing what, like, and that's it. And you're gone. That was something that kind of stuck with me for a long, long time. So is this is this how you typically create an idea? Like, is this is it something that you're like you get kind of this idea of like, I really love this thing. So for this one, it is the idea of something that is so massive that you want to explore outside and then also inside. Right. That daunting fear of that. Is that kind of how your ideas come to you or are they all different I'm very curious about that. That was this, that was that's where the premise came from. I don't think that's where the story. I I didn't. You know how you don't you don't realize what kind of the um, emotionally what's tugging at you of like why a story takes a certain direction until after yes. it, and then, and then it's obvious. Yeah. I look at that story now and I realize like I had some other stories in the hopper that were very different that I'm gonna uh-huh. I'll probably begin work on you know next year the year like I'm staging those out. But why this one kind of tugged at me, I think the strongest to be the first was like different reasons in my, like things were happening in my family, you know, and, and now it's obvious. Now I look back and I think, oh, that whole robot, giant robot, that was a metaphor for things that were going on in my life, for things I was trying to control, but couldn't, for things I was maybe, you know, trying to work through with my own, I, I, um, I don't want to sound too sad. I, I lost my youngest brother uh-huh. about 10 years ago. Okay. And I felt helpless that I couldn't save him. Yeah. And and then, you know, years later, I'm looking at the story and I'm reading it aloud to some groups. Mm-hmm. And I'm realizing Molly has a scene where her younger brother gets snatched up out of nowhere. And she's trying helplessly to, like, stop this big robot from tromping up, like, taking her brother away. Yeah. What, where did someone ask, where did this come from? And all, it dawned on me in the moment, like, oh, yeah, I was working through that. Like, wow. I was working through that. You know, I, it, it was unresolved for me. And wow. that, like, it planted the seed, that kind of, you know, scene. And that, and that, that was like the emotional impetus for the, for the entire story. Um, and uh, yeah, you don't, you don't recognize that till later on. No. And that's, Thank you for sharing that, because I think that's something we don't often see and especially hear about on our podcast is the we talk about making things hurt right in a book like you make things hurt or you make things funny or you make them whatever emotion you try and elicit those emotions. But oftentimes those emotions are coming from something inside of us. Right. And we we always try and bust the myth that authors know exactly what they're doing when they put, you know, pen to paper or keys, fingers to keyboard like we don't know. It's a lot of it is your subconscious that's doing that work for you. You have a fun, you know, cute idea of this giant robot terrorizing this town. But then it turns into something a lot deeper. And those are the moments that resonate with people a lot more, I think. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah we trick ourselves. Like, you yeah. don't, it's not, it's not clear until after the writing's done, at least for me. And I, there might be some people who, who are very, um, who are more intentional in kind of a like a conscious way about some of those things. But yes. I think I think 
I think that's maybe how it works with plot, but I don't think that's how it works with theme. I think thematically that stuff sneaks up on all of us and then you realize it later. And I, I think it's, I, and hopefully that's the same experience for the reader too. I don't, like, I wouldn't want someone to be reading and go like, oh, this robot is clearly allegorical. To, like, right. I, like that would kind of get in the way of the fun of this, like the enjoyment of the ride. Yeah. And, but it's, I hope that's something that people reflect on later. Like, oh, what is that, you know, how does technology work in my life to like both, um, you know, make connections and isolate me at the same time. And like, those are, I think those would be good, like book club, book club questions for later. I was going to say, as a teacher, my mind is like, yes, we would have that discussion right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I wrote that down. That theme sneaks up on us because that is something that is so true. I, I agree with you. There are some people out there. I'm sure they sit down and they're like, I'm going to write this theme. Here I go. More power to them. But I think the stuff that really, connects and really hurts and really, you know, almost bridges that gap between author and reader is the stuff that you, I have what I call the oh no moment. And it's <laughs> purely when I'm writing that I'm like, what is happening here? Oh no. Oh no. And then it's like, I have to go process this thing that is slowly getting into this book or this scene. And that, that is magic. And that takes drafts and drafts and drafts. It's not something for me, at least it's not something I sit down and I'm like, I'm going to process this part of my trauma today. Uh, oh, I like the oh no. That's a good way to think about it. It's the oh no moment where yeah. you just go, oh, oh no. Oh no, this is about something about me. Okay, we got to we gotta pick this apart. And that's usually where I go journal for a little bit. I'll have, I'll get through the scene and then I'll go back and journal and be like, okay, what just happened? <laughs> where, did, why, what, how can I use this? Yeah, I'm kind of, you know, I'm, uh, like I wasn't very, as a technician, you know, like as, as a writer, even though I had a career as a as a writer in another field, like writing uh, middle grade novels is still, I'm still pretty new at it. So there were a lot of parts to that where I had those kind of, you know, those oh no moments where like I wrote that first draft of that story and I got it to a point and then I was like, oh, okay, this feels like kind of a story like, well, what happens? Is it is the story over? And then I had this idea about where it would go next. And I realized that was the that is now what is called the midpoint of the story, but, which people often, you know, map out and have an outline for like I was just feeling my way through blindly. I just like, well, it doesn't feel done yet. Maybe this happens now. This surprise, you know, and that. Um, but that was also kind of one of those, oh, no, moment, like emotionally what I wanted it to do. But yeah. also from a technical perspective, I didn't realize um, what I was doing until later. People would say, like, oh, that mid that twist, that was really how did you plan that? I think of that. And I'm like, mm, I didn't. I just <laughs> just like blindly feeling my way. And yeah. then like, ah, turn here. OK, <laughs> so I'm going to pivot just a little bit. I want to go back to setting, right? I want to talk about this because this is something that we talked about a little bit before we started recording. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about the setting of your book and how fortuitous it is in this current uh, creative climate? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm benefiting from, again, I feel like uh, way too, way too dumb to have like uh, <laughs> uh, been strategic about this because I started this book. I have a uh, 
Facebook memory documentation of starting this book over 10 years ago. Like when I was really public about like, okay, I'm going to give this a go. I'm taking a sabbatical from work. I'm going to like go hunker down and write this. And here's the idea. Um, I uh, made the decision to set the book very specifically in the summer of 1983. And that was like kind of pre- I wasn't, you know, I'm trying to remember when, like, there was some 80s stuff out there. And I know 80s has been, like, 80s for a lot of younger folks now is kind of like maybe the 60s. Right. But we're from my generation. Like, we kind of, in, like, we appreciate it in kind of a kitschy way. We like, uh-huh. oh, look at the ridiculous fashions of the right. <laughs> era that we're not a part of. We're going to, like, have a 60s-themed party. And I see people do that with 80s now. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's that's my fat. That's what, that's what I wore. Right. Uh, so I, I chose to do that for a couple of reasons. And as I, I didn't, one of the reasons for me is I really like action adventure and I like it in the mm. spirit of some of those like classic 80s Spielberg movies like E.T. and yeah. the Goonies where you have like a bunch of kids on bikes. Right. I think, Around when you started this, was that sorry to interrupt, but I think Super 8 came out around that time. Oh, yeah, Super Which, 8. And I've been a big fan of how, yeah. So JJ Abrams, I think, has been very true to like all of his reboots of the things that I love from a kid. Like, so I'm old enough to have seen the first Star Wars in the theater with my, like, New Hope. Yes. As a kid in the theater with the sticky floors. When that first scene happens, and I don't think younger people understand how, like, when the when the that giant spaceship comes overhead, there had yeah. never been a cut quite like that in <sighs> cinema. Yeah. And it still gives me goosebumps when I think about that now, because that was the, the bigness of something. Like, you really could appreciate it. And that was all done with, like, models. Like, yeah. <laughs> and there, there, was, there was no CGI there. But anyway, that, so back to the 80s. The 80s is part of my experience as a kid, my lived experience of getting on my bike, mm-hmm. no helmet, no shirt, no sunscreen, no parents anywhere near, and just yeah. we're gonna figure out, like, we're going to go solve problems and have adventures and go off and do that. I wanted, that's the kind of childhood that I knew, so I knew, like, I wanted to write about that and I thought in a way that might be kind of a cool like almost exotic or escapist kind of world for maybe young people today because it really does feel like another era like Mm -hmm. from a a practical sense if you're writing an adventure and if all the kids have essentially a supercomputer in their pocket with GPS and uh, communication um, ability like that changes your plot points mm-hmm. like you just, or you have to do something. You have to, you have to like get to a spot where the signal's low or the, right. and I just, I thought for me, I thought it worked a little better to get to that point with just not having any of those elements. Yeah. And the other thing I really wanted to do is like, as far as um, from a, from a kind of a tone point of view is 1983 is kind of the, one of the first years that I remember, I wasn't very aware of what was going on in the world, but 1983 was the year that um, President Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire. Okay. And that got a big, like, 
like that tracked all the way down to my head. I was, yeah. and I'm not aware of politics at all. So I, like as a young kid, I was like, what an evil empire. That sounds kind of like mythical, you know, sounds very epic. Yeah. So I wanted to set the stage where, of course, if there's anything bad happening, it's got to be the Soviets. Okay. And that was a helpful, so that's kind of, it's kind of, it's almost quaint to look at it now because now we're looking, <laughs> those Russians, they're still up there. Right, they're still at it. <laughs> yeah, the Soviet Union doesn't even exist in the same way it did when I was a kid, but they're, you know, they're still up to right. their. Still up to their, their. I don't want to call it hijinks, but uh, they're still up to their stuff. Still, they're still kind of like our nemesis in a lot of, like yeah. ideologically. And, you know, we could. We could explore that more, but I, <laughs> it was much simpler. In 1983, it truly was, their perception was evil empire. And there were movies like Red Dawn, where if anything bad happened, it was it was obviously the Russians. Right. So I thought that was that would be a really fun way to kind of like set the stage for something bad happening in the middle of America. Yeah, which rings true to that era, right? That absolutely rings true to that era. That is a almost like a I don't want to say like a hallmark of it, but it is. It's it's kind of what identifies that era from what I understand. Like teaching um I used to teach high school and one of the things we talked about <clears throat> sorry teaching was the crucible and how it is like McCarthyism. And yeah that was our big parallel was look at this point of history. Everything you know, was the Russians, your neighbor was a spy, everyone was, you know, and without that ability to text someone or have that, you know, Twitter feed popping up with the news to confirm things or not confirm things, you just have to go on what your neighbors say or what your news says or what your president says. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know what, you know, what else is funny about that is that from the earlier draft of that, I was worried that that the 1980s would be too unrelatable because oh, yeah. I had mentioned a few very specific things from my own childhood. Like, you know, you mentioned to a young person, you mentioned like a, a 45 record. Yeah. And um, they may not know what that is. Mm -hmm. And I got the, I th which I think now is very good advice. I remember this was like, I had not read Ready Player One, which is oh. just full mm -hmm. of Easter eggs until after and my editor and my agent both kind of gave me permission to say, you can just, with the 80s references, you can just go hog wild if you want. Like, go nuts. Yeah. Go nuts with it. So I I just had a, like, I just, when they gave me permission to do that, I just had a ball. Like, with every specific kind of toy I played with, with the actual, like, the songs that people were listening to. at that, Like, I just, I had fun that made it authentic for me. And every time I like brought that, brought a new draft and said, oh, is this, is this okay? Is this getting way too like really granular about They're like, no, that just keep going, keep adding more of those. Uh, yes. So I, I, so what adults, have, like kids like reading it, I'm finally getting feedback from young people now. Oh, yay, good. That's really fun. But, you know, children's publishing is kind of weird because you get, you get a lot of uh, feedback from adults first, even if it's geared toward uh, kids. Yeah. And adults are enjoying it for different reasons. They're like, oh, see what you did there. Right. You know, so I hope that's true. I hope that's um, somebody just um, 
uh, brought to my attention a review that someone had dropped online and said, like, I recommend this for adults. And I was yes. like, oh, great, yes. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, a story should transcend age, absolutely. But I, I hope there's, like, a different set of rewards there for people, like, depending on your age, where you hit that story. And that's, right. to me, that'd be a success. Like, there's different levels of enjoyment, you know? Right. And that, that sparks with the eighties movies, right? Like my, my parents watched, my parents were the ones who indoctrinated me into the like, you know, cult of star Wars and, you know, Indiana Jones and planet of the apes and star Trek and all these, all Mm. these different cult classics. And it did transcend age. It was something that I could watch and enjoy. And there were things that when, when I got a little older, there were like cartoons that my dad would watch with me because it, shifted that age bracket there were jokes in there for him there were things relatable in there for him it was a little bit of a throwback for him and I think that is especially with middle grade I find young adult young adult is one of those that it goes you know teens to adults right yeah middle grade I think is that very sweet spot where it's like the child enjoys it the teen enjoys it the preteen enjoys it and the parent also enjoys it because they get they get the references that their kid might get, not get, and then they can explain it to them and have that moment. Yeah. I put some of those in there that aren't, that I do, I don't explain all the way. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping maybe it leads to some of those conversations, <laughs> some of the historical bits. And it's funny, like later I, I was pretty accurate just from memory on most of those things, but I did, you know, a, when it, when a, story when a manuscript goes to the machinery of a large publisher it really uh-huh. gets scrutinized down to every little point and everything gets fact-checked and i got things fact-checked all the way down to my reference of uh cheese whiz what like i mentioned like my memory of cheese whiz is like the can that you you squirt on a cracker which is true but get this i didn't like i must have you know mixed this up in my memory the can is only post-1983. Up till 1983, the only manufacturer of the of that was Easy Cheese, which is not in my direct memory. So I had to change it to a – it was a uh, Cheese Whiz was only in a jar until oh, – like, that's what? the level – that's the level of historical accuracy you will find in this giant robot story because, like, down to those – Wow. Ones, yeah, somebody actually fact-checks those. Whoever's fact-checking that – they were like there's another 80s reference put that on the list here's another one which that that actually surprises me that there weren't more corrections so i think i'm just i think i was pretty on with most of my other like whatever you know if i was some some something about a toy or saturday morning cartoons or whatever it was like i think i got most of it right but whatever i didn't they made sure i got it right Oh my gosh. I love that. Cause that's something that I think about. Um, we had, Oh, because this is tied into what you're talking about. Like your book written 10 years ago comes out now and lo and behold, we have a new wave stranger things. Yeah. Plenty of things that pull, you know, pull from the eighties and we were watching this newest season and there was something that happened, something that happened or something that came up that I was like, that wasn't in the eighties. That wasn't. No. Uh uh-uh. uh, and we Googled it, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like yeah. somebody made sure, and they even like they went down to like what year Stranger Things came out, and whether it was out or not, and this thing existed, and it did. And I was like, 
whoever is the historical person or people for the show, hats off. My gosh. It's, you know, it's funny too. So I'm, I'm loving the comparisons to stranger things. I like to say mine is kind of like stranger things light relative to like season four, which got pretty murdered. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like I feel like mine's scary for like the eight to 12 set, but it's not like, you know, that's like kind of Freddy Krueger. It was full on horror show. Scary. <laughs> and I'm not I'm not quite there, but I, I did I did appreciate in the show like every movie poster, every little because I did that too. And it's funny to see like and again, this is just from my this is from my childhood, but like I have a character who wears a um like he's a big Def Leopard fan. Because uh-huh. that was because I just remember that. I remember Def Leppard. I remember the Pyromania tour. Yeah. And I go back and I'm, I'm che- sometimes I check for myself, like, hey, am I remembering what the concert tee would look like? Because I mentioned that he's got that on there and I look at it. And then you look at some 80s and you think like it's a it's a it's like a simpler or more innocent time. But some things do not age well. At uh-huh. all. Like in the 80s, even some of the movies I went back and watched, like, oh, they're like. I mean, kind of cringy or like you look at Def Leppard, the Pyromania tour has these T-shirts of a um, uh, like the, the what is it? The scope of a gun uh-huh. looking into a, a building with smashed windows and it's on fire. Oh, no. Yeah, that's I mean, that's what kids, that's what all the kids were like. Ten year old kids were wearing. Yeah. You know, and oh, dear, I like. It's so weird you set that against right now. I would just, mm. I, um, it was different time, you know? Yeah. And I was, uh, I'm just wondering what's going to make, you know, what's going to be so cringy about right now for in a couple of decades. That, that, that is a big thing. Um, I've thought about that often of like, what, what are the things? And as I, as I too get older, I, you know, being in the classroom, there are some trends that they'll pick up that I'm like, I can't, I don't say it to their faces. I just say, you're going to regret this in like 15 years. When you look back at your pictures, your time hop will be like, look what you wore in middle grade. And you'll be like, oh my gosh, (laughs) but just let you have that fad. Let you do that thing. It'll be great. (laughs) You'll, you'll too regret or have nostalgia for. Uh We'll find out. I'm a little too, uh, like I'm a little too shy to get super, like, you know, all books are kind of autobiographical in a, in certain senses, yeah. But like my my fashion sense in Molly and the Machine is more about what I observed with other people than myself. Because my because so I have so this is set in kind of it's an Appalachia adjacent kind uh-huh. of Ohio. That's not where I grew up. That's where I've lived for the last 20. I, I've lived in Ohio for the last 20 years. OK. The reason I set the book in Ohio is because I come from the out west where like Ohio is still very exotic for me. It's lush and green. Mm-hmm. I, I set it in a fictionalized town that's in uh, based on Hawking Hills, which is this beautiful, like rolling, very scenic and kind of picturesque landscape. Yeah. Easy, for, easy place for a robot to hide. Right. Um, but I look at that, that like culturally that area and it would be more like eighties metal uh, versus like I was more 80s new wave you yeah, know yeah okay my hair looked like a flock of seagulls <laughs> like, 
it was a big avalanche that went down over one eye. I mean, there might have been a year in high school. Maybe I had some eyeliner on. It was a different, you know. Right. Duran Duran and Culture Club. So that's not like culturally, that's not this little town. This town is more like Def Leppard, you know. Yeah. Um, And and some and a lot of other like 80s rockers. And there's, you know, and it's it's got a it's got a vibe I'm familiar with from what uh-huh. I observed when I was living in that time. But um, maybe another book down the road will be more like my own personal jam of like 80s new wave. That would I be- would love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> Put them side by side and compare. Yes, because I, I know that really well, too. <laughs> the thing I love about this is something that I think a lot of people, we talk about writing to the market and how you shouldn't write to the market as far as chasing trends. So- mm-hmm. You know, if a bunch of 80s books start coming out or are coming out right now, don't chase, don't start writing your 80s book now and expect it to get published right now. It's it's probably not going to happen. But yeah. you weren't chasing trends. You had this book for 10 years and then it serves you now. And I think that's something a lot of people don't. I've learned this recently, just having made it out of the query trenches. I think about all these books that I've shelved. They're not going to fit in this market but they could later and they're not dead. Like that concept of that book you wrote and put away isn't dead. It's never dead. It Mm -hmm. can always come back. And that's, I don't know, that brings me heart because I always felt like it was burying them (laughs) somewhere out to pasture. (laughs) I'll never see you again. No, I think I definitely keep those. And they might even like, they might even morph a little over time. Like maybe there's, Mm -hmm. there could be different kinds of ways to adapt like the core elements of those stories or they might just find their time at some point. Right. You know, but I have a, I have a theory about that, about why, like, why things trend. And uh-huh. other creative folks talk about it in different ways. But I always think about it as the creative ether. Like, if you're a creative person, you're kind of tapped into that ether. And it might, like, and, and it's, and creative people do a, a good job at, like, taking disparate elements out of that ether and combining them in new ways. And if you yeah. multiply that, you're going to have a lot of like, why do, why do three or four asteroid movies come out in the same year? You know, and it's okay. because there's some things happening in creative people's minds where they take something from over here, something over there, put them together. And it takes, it, it takes uh, a little bit of time for, uh, for a, a story to, go through its, you know, to develop and gestate and, and it's, they all end up coming about at around the same time. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think it, I don't believe so much in like people are peeking at what over at other people's shoulders. Yeah. I think it just, I think that's how trends happen is creative people are kind of, many are get tapped into like these, you know, in these different, like, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if we combine these, like you get inspired by what's happening. At the at the same right because you're living through things at the same time and right. that's just kind of naturally like what happens you know that makes so much sense I mean if you think about it there are um in any given year there are at least five of the same type of movie and they're not the same but they're same like they're space movies and then there's adventure movies like this year was the year of I saw more adventure rom-coms than I've ever seen in the last 10 years and yeah. I started asking like, why is that happening? Why is that happening right now? 
And maybe it's because of those conversations that people are happening, or maybe, you know, even our conversation where we're talking about, um, you know, McCarthyism and Russia is still very prevalent right now. So why not make stranger things that has the Soviet union worked in and why not? Like it Hmm. makes your, that's such an fascinating theory. Yeah. Interesting. When you're thinking your advice about being, being a little cautious about specifically writing to market, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree with that because I just think you just need to chase that thing that thrills you. And, and as weird as that might feel, or as like as specific, you know, you know, the more specific any story is, the more universal it will, uh-huh. uh, it will relate to others. I think that you just you just burrow deeper and deeper in your own brain about like what's really that thing that you just can't leave alone. And I think that's always good advice for anybody like exploring like what the next like it. Like, you know, deep down, just dig in there for a minute and can you know what's really like, oh, yeah, what really gets you going. Right. And I just think you indulge that, you know, that's a, because yes. this, then the process is more of a joy because it takes so long. I don't know about you, but I'm a I I feel like I'm a pretty disciplined and pretty um, like motivated writer. Uh-huh. But I don't think I could do more than a title a year, even on my best. Like I'm. I am working on, you know, I, like I'm, I'm up against that deadline for the sequel right now. And I'm excited. Right. I feel, I'm feeling good about it. I'm, I feel like it, I'm hoping that it's even kind of my empire strikes back like better. Yes. Like I hope it is. I'm just going, I'm just writing that th- when they ask like, what, what do you think the sequel should be? I'm like, well, it should have these big killer mutant frogs in it. I'll figure out how they got there. Right. What I want to write about. Right. Big, hungry frogs (laughs) with giant projectile tongues. That's what happens next in this town. I love this so much. People can tell when you've had fun with something. They can truly say, it it may not work, but they can tell you had a blast writing this and I had a blast reading it. Yeah, it's, you know, you look back, you you wonder if you, sometimes you look back at something and like, am I still going to like this? And I have had, I've been kind of heartened since the book came out. I've had a few like moments where I get to read it in front of a group, you know, and I open it up to a page and I didn't always have this experience when I was still working on it. Like you go back to a chapter mm-hmm. and you look at it and go like, oh gosh, this like, that's what my Gen X is famous for just looking at everything and everything sucks. You know, uh-huh. that's why we always get so kind of like, boomerish about the next generation but everything's great it's like no we like everything sucks and we suck and you look at your chapter and you're like that sucks well I had a moment you know I start to read and I have that moment of nerves so I'm like oh I hope that and I look at it and I'm like I gotta be I it didn't suck to me like I kind of I was, I, I was happy to share like that little piece and I hope I haven't gone back and read through the book I don't know if I ever want to do that but Open it up to like, <laughs> yeah, because I'm done with it you now, but it didn't suck. I, oh. I pre-circulated some advanced reader copies at three schools in my neighborhood, okay? And the three librarians, they're all so, so nice about this. The librarians were like collecting feedback and and like the kids were writing things down. And I was putting it, they're putting, so I was reading their reviews and a lot of them were very kind. But then I had 
had one librarian apologizing to me because one kid like just brought it back the next day and was like, no, this is not my, not my, I'm so sorry. I just, he's like, he's trying to say it real diplomatically. Like, um, I just don't think he connected. I'm like, no, I want like, it can't be like somebody can't love it without somebody else going, that is not my thing. Yeah. It's a very specific kind of story. So I I got the biggest thrill out of that. But someone just like didn't even just brought it back. Like, nope, not no. No, thanks. Not. Cracked it. Read one page. We're dead now. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this guy? Don't bring me him again. We're yeah. dead. <laughs> oh, my gosh. If you can survive that, you can survive anything because they are ruthless. Yeah, they are. Um, I, well, I want to talk about a couple things because I feel like I could talk to you like all day long because this has been so much fun. Um, I want to talk about briefly genre. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I learned from our Tracy Badua episode. She talked about you're not selling like you're truthfully not selling to kids. It's different than YA, like YA, we're on Instagram, we're connecting with readers on Twitter, we're connecting with readers all the time. TikTok, we're connecting with readers, but middle grade audiences probably aren't on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, interacting with authors. You're selling to schools, you're selling to teachers, you're selling to librarians, you're selling to whoever. Can you talk a little bit about that, like fitting this 80s mashup robot thing with genre? So mine, if you think about like the Venn diagram of like the genre categorization of literature, uh-huh. my book fits in a few, like in the, in the overlap of a few of those circles. Yeah. And the first one that I've started, like, like I was a little hesitant about, but the first one is science fiction. Uh-huh. So my book has this giant robot in it. So I was hesitant to think of it myself as sci-fi. I didn't initially right. think because there's no aliens or like, you know, it's not set on another world. Um, It's, it's maybe improbable, but like, not like, like it's a very retro version of sci-fi. Like it's a giant, but it could exist. And like, I take some pains to try and write that in a way where it's not, it's not just fantastical, you know, it's like, like the nuts and bolts, the literal nuts and bolts of that robot. I kind of work through that a little bit, you know? Yeah. So I, but I have found that sci-fi, like genre, like it's, it's market, all, all genre is trying to do is help a book find its readers. Mm-hmm. And I really want the book to find. So if uh, sci-fi is a type of clue along with some other clues, like a few other clues is this 80s. It's also historical fiction. Yeah. It's crazy to me that 80s. It qualifies as historical fiction, but I guess I'm just that old. But they started doing the, uh, not, like, that was the thing on Twitter. They were like, if you're writing your book set in the 90s, it's historical fiction. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So historical fiction is also a clue. And there's other clues. And there's some that I was not even aware of. Like, um, again, my agent and my editor are much more, uh, they're both brilliant and very editorial and they tap into what they they mentioned uh stem literature yeah that's a thing right now so i did not know that was a thing but i'm happy to be a part of that because as soon as i they explained to me kind of what that means that there is a chic and stem movement right now Uh there's organization and people are looking at books with young strong female main characters yeah you know their way around science and engineering and technology and yeah. there's a whole crop of books right now for this in this year 
coming out because I, you know, because I talk with the other writers and that's exciting that we've got, we've got STEM, but that's another, uh, maybe not as established a genre, but that is a genre. And you, then you think about all the other sub genres in there. And I've just learned to embrace like any group that will have you, you know, whether it's historical fic or sci-fi or spec fic or whatever like i in adult fiction i always like what they call a new weird or you know weird Uh i'm a big if it's got weird in it i'm a fan so i I like that too any 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 clues that someone can drop to help channel that book to find its readers and part of that i think what you were hinting at with middle grade is there are some gatekeepers involved and Mm -hmm. like i want someone to tell me like hey Eric, you really need to check this Newberry winner here. Yeah, I'm okay with that because that is it's uh it's more efficient for me in my life. So if somebody, so if there are people doing that, like um, uh, if someone who I feel like is more well read or more well connected than me, have you know says something nice about uh, my book, that makes my that means a lot to me because I know it's going to get to the people that that person is connected. Yeah. With. And I'm I'm at peace with that as a system because I like I just know that like I because I don't know a better way. <laughs> I I get what you mean as far as like if we're looking very specifically with that in schools, I think about how I ran my classroom. I had when you're looking at a classroom, especially in America, 90% of the kids in there are reluctant readers. They don't want to read yeah. because there's so many other things vying for their attention that getting them to sit down, be quiet for a little while and read and then talk about it and get excited. That is so hard for them. That's where teachers do play that role. In again, in my opinion, a good teacher plays the role of I have read widely or I know I'm keeping up with what books are coming out. I know you love that TV show with robots here you go. I know you're obsessed with Stranger Things. Here's an 80s adventure. I can give this to you. I know these books. And it's because that kid isn't going to go out of their way to go to the library to be like, hmm, I really do enjoy zombies. I guess I will look for a zombie book. They're going to be like, no, I don't want to buy it. I'm not getting a zombie book. I'm not going to read. You can't make me read. And it's up to you as a teacher, as an educator to say, okay, Here are the things that I have. Here are the things that I know. I know I have to teach this curriculum, but here's how I can teach it. If it's STEM, that helps a teacher out. If it's history, heck yeah, I can go through and pick out the history components of this book while also getting them to read. So I totally understand that terminology in classrooms, especially. And the last thing that I wanted to touch on, just because it is something that is near and dear to my heart as someone who has been told... um, that my age is old um, and I have to constantly come into, you know, have to sit with those feelings. Can we talk about <clears throat> with all blatancy? Oh, you whippersnapper. I know. I know. <laughs> Who am I? Who am I to say the O word? Uh-huh. No. Um, can you talk about that? Because that is something that I think there is a giant myth around, especially I see it all the time on Twitter where people are like, I just want to get an agent. By by the time I'm 25, so that I can have a book out by the time I'm 26, and I'm like, why, 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 why are you rushing? Life isn't over by the time you hit 30. What? Um, and the fact that I'm going to tag this into that your career before writing books kind of ties in that experience ties into helping with your career now. 
it does help for my like it helps on a practical level but i will it, it also helps on a very um uh on a mental well-being level because yeah. if you want to be a happy like writer in the publishing industry mm-hmm. just spend 25 years in the trenches of an ad of ad agencies oh. and like write copy like write copy on deadline for a variety of clients some you will find way more inspiring than others have that copy just eviscerated on a daily basis by somebody who doesn't know words at all like who just have it just pummeled all the time for do that for 25 years and then you get into publishing and you hear like your your fellow writer friends complain about some edits and and you just want to say oh my my sweet child <laughs> you know not what you speak like this is this is like the candy land here this is right. great so it's all relative right like if you do mm-hmm. that for a while i will say like writing like if if you if you want a career as a writer first i'm sorry because especially in the states it's not really it's not really like geared to do that and there, and you have to make some very like practical considerations like i was for most of my life i was the guy in my family because i have a lot of kiddos <laughs> uh, have five. I have a sixth on the way. I, some somebody. If you're in a if you're in a relationship and you have children, especially, somebody's got to have the job with the with the healthcare benefits. Yeah. Like you have to make that decision. And that was yep. me most of my life. Mm-hmm. Right now, that is not me. My wife has graciously taken the mantle. Like she is the she's the one to have that job. And she and she's at a stage in her career where she loves it and she like she likes her job and she does yeah. well at it so we both think we're getting away with something right no like i'm i'm more than happy to be the support staff at home if i can keep writing books every day right. and and now in my 50s i have a different view about it but i don't feel like i still got i think if you're if you're in your 50s and you try and take a care of yourself a little bit like i'm still Feeling pretty good, ready to write every right. day. Like I, I think I still got a lot of books in me. I wish, like if it if it would have started earlier, that would I no complaints about that. Yeah. I did start. I remember the feeling in my twenties. I was trying. I was pitching some picture books, uh-huh. and I got my first picture book deal when I was twenty nine. And I thought, oh, thank God, because if not, I would, my life would be in ruins. And I later found out that, and I I published a few picture books and then I just got busy with my day job for Uh like a couple more decades. Right. And then like, it was much later that I'm coming back to it now, like late forties. I was like, okay, I clocks are ticking, but I didn't feel, I, well, I feel like right now in my fifties, I have a perspective that like, um, I can kind of see behind the scenes what some, um, some writers get wrapped around the axle about Uh that does not there's less of that (laughs) in your 50s I think and I I just think that's maybe helpful to the your daily practice a little bit if that makes sense you know for perspective and it just like you you also kind of you know what you're going for uh, and you know what you want so and I would say like right now like for my 
what I would call, you know, my debut middle grade novel. Yeah. Like, even though I had a few picture books before, this really does in every way feel like a debut for me. Yeah. In my, in my fifties feels great. Like I'm, I'm so it was worth it. It was totally worth it. And right. I'm in a spot in my life now where I can dedicate more time. Like my balance now is not between this and a high engagement job like advertising, which was right. very difficult for me to balance, but I can balance this and make pancakes every morning for the girls. Right. <laughs> like, and do all the, you know, do the the chores around the house in between, like letting that new, you know, letting the idea of the giant frogs percolate while I change over the load of laundry. Like right. I am happy as can be. So that it's a stage in my life I didn't I didn't picture it quite this way, but just I would tell younger people, like if you're younger than I am, or even older, be open to how it might unfold in a way you're not expecting that you might it might be even better than you would imagine because that's how it is for me now. Yeah. And worth the wait. That I think that as someone who is not very patient um, with her goals, um, I am someone who's like, no, I have to have it right now. I don't put, I don't put a time, like I don't put an age on it. I was never the person who's like, I have to have this done by my thirties or whatever. I never had that mentality, but I am someone who's like, I need it to happen right now. And if it doesn't happen now, it won't happen ever. So we got to push real hard, but I am learning that life tends to unfold if you're diligent, like you said, yeah. if you're diligent about what you want, life tends to unfold when it needs to. Like those things happen when they need to. And I I feel like with that mentality of things happened in my 20s, I didn't know who I was in my 20s. I literally I had no clue. I was just like ping ponging between things. Like yeah. I guess I hike a lot and drink craft beer. Okay, I guess I I'm uh, super nerdy into Miyazaki stuff. So I'll just wear all of that. I guess I'm now into like, and I was just yeah, ping ponging. And now I feel like, okay, I can look back on that time and say that was a very necessary time for me to figure it out. But I'm glad things are happening to me now mm-hmm. because I feel more in control of them. Like I feel more appreciative of them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mean that I, that notion of having your, your life in an exterior sense feel a little like uneventful uh-huh. the writing like can help you untether your head in a way so that you can just go in that real crazy whack it's hard to do that when life's really wacky like yes. when there, this is i'm gonna butcher the quote about like living like uh living your life boring so that your you know your work can be you know violently imaginative it's i think there's a truth there my day-to-day life is is very happily not too eventful in that regard and that and that allows me a lot of space to do and i have you know the the day-to-day kind of duties i have around the house don't suck the same kind of juice out of me that like for example being a creative director in an ad agency did for years really i had to be on creatively all the time and now i now i all that part of my brain i put that all into the books yeah, book, all of it. But that didn't line up for me until, you know, until very recently. And so I have all these starts of books for the last couple of decades that yeah. I'm excited to finish now. But I think right. I think they're going to be better now because I think maybe I'm I think I'm probably better than I was. in right. my 30s. I think I'm probably a better writer. Um, right. 
Because so, you've had time. And like you yeah. said, that, sp- that emotional mental space to kind of explore and create and learn and do that you didn't. Yeah. So keep it totally, totally. If it, you know, I, I don't want to tell people like it won't happen to your 50s, but even if it yeah. doesn't happen to the ripe old age of in, in the your your 50s, still great. Right. <laughs> Eric, this has been so much fun. <laughs> oh, it has. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sitting and talking with me today. I cannot wait to read Molly and the Machine. It sounds like my exact jam. It sounds like the perfect summer read. I need it. Oh, well, thank you. I hope so. I, I hope it's a good summer read for you. And if other people want to read Molly and the Machines, they can buy it wherever books are sold. Is that true? That is true. It is out now and it's uh, everywhere where I've checked. I've seen it on the shelves. So yes! it's kind of to go to a bookstore and find it there. But it's, yeah, it's there and it's online and it's out and it's even getting nice placement. So Yay! it hasn't been super tough to find, which makes me happy. Um, that's exciting because that's, I mean, it's not always in your bookstores like that. Whenever, if I ever get a book published, it'll be, I'll have to call ahead to make sure that my bookstore gets it. <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, like, you go uh, in and you see it like on a staff picks uh, stand. Uh, and it makes, especially if your expectation is like, I hope they have it. in their Oh my room. gosh. <laughs> that makes me so, so happy. I will make sure to put a link in the show notes to your book, website, social medias, all of that stuff. So as you know, if you listen to the podcast, we wrap it up in one of two ways. I'll give you your choice. You can tell me something that, you know, that was a positive that brought you joy this week, or you can pitch your book as boring as possible. Pitch your book badly. Oh, well, I'm all about the joy. I don't, man, I'm, I'm, (laughs) the launch has been too recent for me to be boring about it. I'm still still like (laughs) unfettered joy about it. Um, uh, you say a moment. I should have prepared for. I sh- yeah. should know this. It a moment that's brought me joy. Yeah, it doesn't have to be book related. Just something that just made your week. Um, over Father's Day weekend, uh, I was just tweeting about this, but I, you know, it's been interesting to, with my my two youngest uh, daughters. I took one of them to a bookstore that I had not been able to visit yet here locally. It's a little bit. It's about a thirty minute drive from my house, but I uh-huh. I love this bookstore. And it's kind of a it's kind of a labyrinth. And I just decided to go, you know, when you're trying to get your kids an idea of like, what does their dad do? Yeah, that was something different for the first few years of their life. So walking through the bookstore and I didn't say anything. I didn't even I didn't call them that I was coming. I didn't yeah. even had my book in. I just like showed up. We were going to do some book shopping. Check out this bookstore. I let her discover for herself when we got to the middle grade room that she saw my book on the shelf and she had this uh oh i want to get weepy uh she had this like mind blown moment dad dad how did they get you like she's still trying to understand how this works how did they get your book and then you know i talked to one of the folks there and they're super friendly and uh they had me sign it and she just thought that was like wait they're gonna let you is that your book like they're gonna let you sign it and we had a I just love that moment where she could kind of discover like, Hey, that's what, that's what your dad does now. That's his job. It was really sweet. And it was like, you know, um, right. You know, it's on the same shelf. So something like she, of course, wanted the latest uh, dog man book. Yeah. You know? And then I'm like, 
kind of in the vicinity of Dogman. So like I I think you're cool. I think I was kind of like kind of cool for half a second. Right. That was my joyous moment as a my good dad moment. My heart is glowing. Oh, and it, it was it was a good and it was oh. fun, a good weekend. It was just a really good. I mean, it, the only thing I like be like more than being a writer is probably like I love being a dad. Yeah. And that was just a good like worlds collided. Oh. Hearts everywhere. It was really sweet. So I'm gonna I'll, carry that with me. Can I carry oh, that good. joy with me too? Because yeah. that. There's enough in that moment. Yeah, you can have. have oh much. my gosh. It was a good one. That is so wonderful. Oh. Well, thank you. Thank. Wonderful. Thank you for not getting too gaggy at my. my no. Sweet moment. I am a sap, so I love oh. I love all things. I am a fierce defender of joy and things that bring me joy. Even if it's like I found this cute, cute flower, it brought me so much joy. I'm <laughs> sure people are like, "What is wrong with her?" But I'm like. But it's cute and I love it. So I love it. It's a joy. So that's, yeah. Oh. Joy moment. Thank you for leaving all of us with that wonderful joy moment, Eric. This has been a blast. Oh, thank you. Thanks for what you do. I love your podcast. Yeah. So you can go back, go out right now, go get Molly in the Machine, go like, go review it on Amazon, Goodreads, all of that. You know the drill. Oh, yes. Yes. I appreciate doing all those things. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Basic Bitches. We super appreciate it. And I hope you had as good of a time as I did talking with Eric John Slangeroop, which is great. Um, it was fantastic. Go buy Molly and the Machines. You want it now, especially after that Stranger Things. We got to wait two years. Why not read about 80s kids going on adventures? And I will see you next time. Bye. <laughs>